Welcome back to the IoT Podcast. I'm your host, Tom White. Every week, we are joined by the biggest names in IoT to unravel the trends, misconceptions, and predictions for the Internet of Things. Before we get into today's episode, don't forget to subscribe on whichever platform you're watching or listening on and turn on that notification bell so you're never out of the loop. In today's episode, I'm joined by Tom Raftery, former SAP VP and futurist, host of the Climate Confident and Digital Supply Chain podcast. We'll be exploring the concept of IoT for good and talking about some of the real-life case study examples of IoT for good in healthcare, climate, drones and connected cars. We'll also get into what is a product as a service. What does that mean and why are companies shifting to this? This is not one to be missed. Before we get into the episode, shout out to one of our sponsors today, 5e Tech. 5e Tech are specialists in finding people who make technology a force for good in the world. They bridge the gap between talent and deep tech businesses around the globe. Click the link in the description to find out more. Before we get into the episode, shout out to one of our sponsors, IoT Tech Expo Europe, the leading event for digital twins, IoT and digital transformation. Tom, welcome to the IoT podcast. Tom, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I've been looking, I've been looking forward to this, Tom. Uh, as we were sort of saying backstage in our discovery call, you are no stranger to podcasts, to media, to social media, and IoT. And it's always a pleasure to have someone on the show well versed in this. I feel like it, it, it makes everything easier, right? <laughs> Not quite my first podcast, no, no, yeah. no. So I, I, I run two podcasts, the Digital Supply Chain Podcast, where I've published over 320 episodes so far, and the Climate Confident Podcast, where I've published over 120 episodes so far. And those are just two podcasts. I've done other podcasts in the past. In fact, the first podcast I did was called Pod Leaders. And this was back around 2006, where you were to kind of hand roll your own RSS feed and stuff like that. But uh, it was it was cool. It was uh, it was one of the break. It was just about coming out at the time. 2006 was uh, when podcasts were really kind of just starting to take off. And so I had some really interesting guests on that podcast. It was fa- fascinating. So pod leaders were kind of leaders in the the um the, the nascent Web2 space at the time. So I had people on like Mike Arrington, who ran TechCrunch. Uh, I had people on like uh, Vince Cerf, uh, who is the uh, internet evangelist for Google, for example. He's the co-inventor of TCP IP, which is the kind of wow. network protocol which enables the internet. So, you know, some amazing guests on the podcast. Yeah, I mean... Fantastic. I mean, I, I feel I think the word is schooled now. I feel schooled. I feel some sort of a, a baby, some sort of upstart now compared to you, Tom, <laughs> when it comes to comes to podcasts. But uh, no, I, I think you know, just to touch on that before we get into a journey, I think that's one of the remarkable things with podcasts: the fact that um, the proliferation of uh, niche or niche for our uh, US friends podcasts in chosen areas is really, really, really great. And the fact that you've had people on. You know, inventor of TCP IP. I mean, we had one of the kind of founding fathers of Wi Fi on our podcast. It's just like, wow, you know, this is like integral to society, not even to IoT. So the fact that you can just have 
have nice conversations and publish it on the internet for, for people to enjoy. I think it's a really, really nice thing, actually. Uh, oh, it's, it's great. And as you say, there, there are so niche. Another one that I remember now that was on the podcast was Dan Bricklin, who, who was the inventor of VisiCalc, which was the, the world's first spreadsheet. So, <laughs> so a wow. precursor to, to Excel. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Absolutely amazing. But yeah, no, I mean, th th there are podcasts on literally anything, any, any, th the most esoteric hobby or interest you might have, there's going to be a podcast on it. And uh, not always great podcast, but there's always going to be at least one. And so, you know, it's, it's fascinating that way that, you know, you can, you can find a podcast and just listen to it i i do it i listen to podcasts when i'm doing things like walking dogs or working in the kitchen you know cleaning up after lunch or whatever uh going for a walk and on a saturday morning or something or working in the garden or any of these kind of things where i don't need to uh be watching a screen but i can still be taking in information and so you know for things that i happen to have particular interest in i have podcast subscriptions for them and I'm just listening them to, to them as I'm driving is another one, another great one use case. So uh, as I'm driving down the road, I have a podcast on and I'm listening to it all the time. Yeah. Drive, drive, driving is a big one for me. I am, um, I'm going out to Bonn next week and I'm driving out there and I've already kind of filtered down my five podcasts that I want to listen to. Now I've got, I, unfortunately I've got that two go and just pick three, but you know, <laughs> but, but, it, but it's nice that you can do that because as you say, you, you can, concentrate on driving, but listen to something and, and absorb information. So I'm a big fan. And of course, you know, 30, 40 years ago, as I, as I tell my team regularly, if you wanted to find something out, you'd have to go to a library, right? Yeah. And you'd have to, you'd have to look at books and, you know, it'd be massively out of date. Now it's just vast amount of information is, is, is amazing. So yeah, both, both big fans of it. And uh, yeah. obviously spend a lot of time in there. That gets me on quite nicely then, I, I suppose. So your background, Tom, um, you know, quick kind of overview. How did you get into the tech world and, and getting to being such a prolific uh, podcaster yourself? Yeah, so um, I'm a biologist by training. So when I was doing biology in University College Cork, when I was in a third year of a four year degree, our uh, professor and head of department told us that we had to hand in our third and fourth year projects on a disk. And this was the first time prior to that, it had always been handwritten projects you handed in. Now it had to be handed in on a disk. And the department had two computers at the time. And they were old Amstrad 1512s, if anyone remembers those. They didn't have an internal hard disk. So you had three five and a quarter inch floppy drives, one with the operating system on it, one with the applications you wanted to use on it, WordStar in this case, and one with your own data on it. So you'd swap in the application disk and your, uh, your own disk so you could save the stuff onto your disk and you were working in RAM really, really weird set, set up. And of course, because it was only two in the department, there was always a queue for them. And there was people waiting to, for their turn. And you know, if you ever made a mistake, it went beep and everyone turned around and went, oh, there's that raftery Egypt again, who doesn't know what he's doing. You know, so I was very lucky, though, because <clears throat> that particular summer, uh, and the summer before I had worked uh, abroad in the UK, for those two summers. And somebody had mentioned to me that if you apply to the UK revenue, uh, you could get your tax back because, you know, I was a student. And so I did. So I got a big check for two summers worth of work in the UK. And so suddenly I had this check with money and I had this 
requirement. And I said to myself, why don't I buy a computer and that way I can have it, work on it at home and hand in my project on my own disk that I've worked on at home. And I don't have to be queuing for the computer and I can make as many mistakes as I want and no, no one be looking sideways at me. And so I bought a Mac. And the reason I bought a Mac was I had read somewhere, I knew nothing about computers. I'd read somewhere that Macs were user-friendly, whatever that meant, but it sounded good. So I went out and I bought a Mac and I bought a book called the Mac Bible, which was kind of a how-to. And I read the book from cover to cover and I got really interested and enthused about the Mac and started teaching myself as much as I could about it. And uh, I handed in the, the project on disk, went really well. And then I went back doing postgrad. And during postgrad, I said to the department, I could teach the undergrads how to use computers if you want. And they said, great. So I did. And then I went to a local computer store and said to them, I'm teaching third and fourth year uh, computer classes in the university. I could teach your clients computers as well if you wanted. And they said, great. And so I started doing that. And I'm very ADD. So I'm always trying to get something, what's new, whatever's new and flashy and, and, and that kind of thing. So computers and technology were at the time. And I was getting really interested in those. And the local computer company was giving me more work than I was able to handle. So I brought a few friends in with me and we were giving computer classes. And then we started doing programming for their customers. And eventually I went full-time at this because I was getting more money from that than I was in the post-grad work. I was doing a lot more and it had a far better prospects as well. Cause I was looking at the post docs in the department who were scrounging around for two and three month projects. And these were people with PhDs and I was getting more in a week than they were in a month. So it made a huge amount of sense. And so set up a computer company, this was 95, ran that through to 2002, where we merged with another company. <clears throat> And the kind of stuff we were doing was really bleeding edge. Uh, you know, we started off doing websites, but then we did database-backed websites. Uh, and of course, a database-backed website is just another word for software as a service. So that's what we were doing. We developed the first game for a mobile phone in Ireland back in 99, and we sold it to Aircell, who were the then mobile phone provider in Ireland. Uh, it was simple. It was done in WML and it was a game of hangman or something like that, but, but, it, but it was the first. And uh, then in 2002, we joined with this other company. I went in as CTO, brought the programming team with me. And uh, we were developing for that company, we were developing, we were taking their access database and converting it into a web app. And it was a reverse logistics ERP application. Uh, and we sold it to the likes of Philips and, and it was, it was, you know, software as a service, you know, they, people like Philips and Tyco who are customers, what they got was a login. And, you know, so there was no software delivery it was they got a login and they could manage all their customers there. We could upload their data for them using CSV files and, you know, the whole thing. So, uh, that, um, got me very much into the whole internet, the whole techno technology side of things. And then again, as I say, because I'm very ADD, I started getting into things like blogging and podcasting. And so in 2004, I left the company and set up a social media consultancy. Uh, so you can imagine social media consultancy in 2004 was a bit early to market. <laughs> I ran that through to 2008. And in the meantime, the company I had worked for, uh, I was still very good friends with the MD. So himself and myself and another guy decided to set up a data center. And um, at the time, there was eight data centers in Ireland, and they were all in Dublin, and we were based in Cork. 
So there was no data center in Cork. So we said, okay, well, we'll set up the first one in Cork. And we decided to, to go for it. <clears throat> we were bootstrapping it, but it was a serious data center. Uh, and to prove that, I said, with the social media background, I said, why don't we open source it? So at the time, data centers were very proprietary about their information. But I said, no, let's go the opposite way. Let's open source it. So we completely open sourced the development of the data center, everything from the arrival of the diggers to dig out the foundations right the way through to the arrival of customer kit. And we decided in building the data center that because we were bootstrapping it, we had to manage the costs very carefully. And there are three main costs in running a data center. There's staff, there's power, and there's connectivity. In terms of the staff, we did sweat equity. In terms of the um, connectivity, we built the data center on top of a hill overlooking the city of Cork. And we put a 24 meter mast in the courtyard. And then we resold space on the mast to the local wireless internet service providers so that they were buying through us their connectivity, which brought our per meg per month cost down. And then the third main cost, as I said, is power. And so we went to town on that. We designed the data center to be as low power as possible. And we called it a hyper energy efficient data center. And because we were blogging all this, documenting the whole thing with Flickr, with uh, blogs, with video, we had a couple of open days as well. That got me a big name in the green energy space. And so in 2008, I moved to Spain, where I live now, Seville. And I was moving for personal rather than professional reasons. And so I didn't speak Spanish. So I needed a job that would allow me to work remotely in English. And because I had um, done this Pod Leaders podcast that I talked about, I had a very uh, nice Rolodex of um, contacts. So I reached out to a good few of them using LinkedIn. So what I did there was I cherry picked, I had about 500 contacts on LinkedIn at the time. And I, I cherry picked about 80 of them. And I sent them a message saying, as you know, I'm moving to Spain next month and I'll need a new job. What would be really handy is if you could leave a recommendation for me here on LinkedIn. So it was an easy ask. And from those 80, I got 25 recommendations and four job offers. And then I, um, I was running a green energy conference and a guy called James Governor from Red Monk was coming over. He was one of the people I invited to speak at it and dropping him back to the airport. I said to him, listen, James, if you ever need someone to open the Spanish arm of Red Monk, I'd be happy to do so. And he kind of, hmm, let me think about that. So he came back to me. So I had five job offers and I went with the Red Monk one. So I joined Red Monk, ran the energy and sustainability practice of Red Monk through to 2016, which we termed Green Monk, obviously. <laughs> and um, then towards the end of 2015, I was starting to get a bit kind of restless. And a couple of companies approached me independently and they said, listen, Tom, if you ever think of leaving, come and have a chat with us. And that kind of planted a seed. And so early in 2016, I said to the guys, look, I'll work till the end of February and then I'm out. Then I wrote a post on my blog saying, leaving Red Monk, nothing lined up yet, but I'm talking to a number of companies. So if anyone else wants to get in touch, feel free. The window's still open for another while. 
And I had some very interesting conversations arise out of that. Uh, Elon Musk got in touch and asked me to come and join Tesla. He wanted me, in, in his words, he wanted me to be the voice of Tesla. Um, and SAP got in touch. And yeah, no, I had a, had a, a half hour call with Elon. That was, that, was, that was funny as well, because you know the way, or maybe it's just me, but first thing I do in the morning before I even turn on the light when I wake up is I grab the phone and I scroll through the notifications on the screen to see what's come in overnight. And as I'm scrolling through this particular morning, I see office of the CEO Tesla and I'm going up and I go, whoa, 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 what was that? And I pull it back down again and I click on it and it opens up an email from this woman called Erin Gallagher. And she says, hi, Tom, I'm the uh, executive assistant to Elon Musk, comma, CEO of Tesla and SpaceX. And I'm kind of thinking, yeah, I know who Elon is, don't worry. And she said, Elon, I would like a chat with you. Are, are you free next Thursday at, I can't remember, 5 p.m. or whatever it was. And I looked at it and I went, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I had to write back to her and go, hey, Erin, um, the time you're proposing is three o'clock in the morning here in Spain where I'm based. And while I would normally be happy to get up at three o'clock in the morning to have a chat with Elon Musk, that particular morning, I'm getting up at five to go to Germany for two days of interviews with SAP. Is there any chance at all he could do it the following week? And she wrote back very graciously going, absolutely no problem, Tom. I completely understand. How is 7 p.m. your time the following Thursday? And I thought, perfect. So 7 p.m. the following Thursday, phone rang and hold the line for Elon Musk. And so I had a chat with him. And uh, that was nice. Uh, the the only downside was he wanted me to go and move to Palo Alto. And at the same time, SAP were offering me a great role where they didn't care where I lived. So they were happy for me to stay here in Seville. And when I looked at the kind of cost of living for having a nice house like I have here in Palo Alto, you know, it was just, it was crazy. You'd be talking, for the kind of house I have here, you'd be talking over 10 million in Palo Alto, easy. And I didn't really want the family to go through a step down in quality of life, uh, which that would have entailed. So um, what I did was I, I took the offer that I had from SAP and then the pro the cost of living in Palo Alto and brought you know, because Tesla asked me how much I wanted. So because I had this great offer from SIP, I was able to kind of go, yeah, to have a, a similar quality of life in Palo Alto, here's how much I would need. And they kind of went, yeah, that's not going to work for us. So that was <laughs> that was the end of that. <laughs> so joined SAP. I was recruited in as an IoT evangelist. And then shortly after joining SAP, the f I, I started in September 2016, so the following spring, uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a spring cleaning thing. Every year in SAP in spring, there are reorgs. And of course, it was a big one in 2017. And the IoT function was given to another team. So I said to my manager, look, I can't really be calling myself an IoT evangelist anymore, can I? And he said, no. And I said, okay, well, what if I call myself an innovation evangelist? And he said, works for me. So went to LinkedIn, went to my email SIG, switched IoT evangelist to innovation evangelist and stayed as the innovation evangelist in IoT until uh, late last year when, unfortunately, I was uh, impacted by the, the tech layoffs.
Wow. What a, what a, what a background. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm still getting over the, um, the conversation with Elon Musk and turning Elon Musk down uh, <laughs> to rebook it. But uh, I think if anything, that probably, probably was a good thing, right? Um, yeah. You know, because it kind of, kind of cements the fact that, uh, uh, you know, he wants to talk to you even more. But what an amazing background, you know, absolutely fantastic. Very entrepreneurial as well, obviously, from the early days in Ireland, building the first data center, buying a computer, et cetera. Yeah. Um, it, 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 uh, it brought back memories of me, actually. When I was 16, I had the choice to buy a, a moped, right, or a laptop. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I bought a laptop, and it was probably the best decision I ever made because it got yeah. me into coding, and coding got me into staffing, and here I am now, you know, running an IoT podcast. So, uh, yeah, it's a, a tremendous background. And I, and, I, and I guess one of the things that I'm really keen on to, to discover more about you, Tom, is where this kind of passion for IoT for good, you know, the climate positive technologies of force for good came from, because... I don't think this is baked into everyone in, in tech, right? You know, and um, probably but, but, not. Yeah, but it seems with you, you're very keen on that. Where where did that stem? So yeah, as as I mentioned, I, I'm a graduate biologist, and even before that, I've always had a love of animals and a love of nature, probably in large part inculcated in me by my dad, who you know used to take me to the countryside most weekends, and we go walk, we go for walks in the countryside, and he was a great lover of nature too. We'd always watch nature documentaries together. He founded a wildlife park in Cork in Ireland called Photo Wildlife Park. It's a, a center for the breeding of endangered species, particularly. Uh, the year it opened in 83, it was the largest cheetah breeding center outside of Africa. And <clears throat> since has been responsible for breeding lots and lots of cheetahs as, as you know, amongst other animals. They have lots of monkeys there as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Zebras, giraffe, scimitar horned oryx, all these kind of things. Uh, and, you know, I, I was involved in that too. Um, and so always had a love of nature. And then when I got into technology and I could start to kind of bring my two passions of sustainability and technology together, it was kind of ideal. So this, the idea of having green data centers and, you know, running conferences and green technologies was great. And a lot of the stuff I did in SAP was as well talking about how to make technology work for good, uh, how to make it work for better for, for bettering the planet and, you know, making as SAP's tagline, making the, the world uh, better and, and improving people's lives, that kind of thing. So that was that was fantastic. And a lot of what I was doing was talking about things like the the energy transition, how the world is shifting away from fossil fuels for energy generation and moving towards renewables and how, you know, electric vehicles are starting to be a thing. And, you know, I was talking about these kind of things back in the, the 2015, for example, I spoke at a Tesla event in Belgium, I, I think it was. Uh, and um, that, you know, I, I've been writing about these kind of things for a while. In fact, one of the reasons that uh, Elon Musk reached out to me was because one of the posts I wrote on my blog was about him and it was about how he has another secret master plan. So I think he saw that and that was one of the reasons he reached out. What What was that post? What was that <laughs> plan? I'm dying so I, to know. Yeah, so he famously wrote about his... A secret master plan in 2006 to you know shift the world to electric vehicles and the, the three stages he was going to go through to get there and 
the what I posited in my he has another secret master plan was that they would be using uh, electric vehicles as virtual power plants. Uh, and so that, you know, you would be able to, to use and, and what else? There was, there was a couple of other things in it that I was positing that he would be using them as, a, I think, a robo-taxi fleet as well, I think I mentioned in it. But the big thing, I think, was about the uh, virtual power plants, uh, both the, 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 the wall batteries they have and the cars could be used as virtual power plants. And that way, uh, that would help, um, that, that would ensure that people's, one of one of the one of the uh, myths around electric vehicles is that if enough of them are rolled out, the grid will collapse. Uh, and of course, this has proven to be completely mythical because you just look at Norway, where ninety percent of new vehicle sales are EVs right now, and they've seen a seven percent increase in electricity electricity demand. So it's you know it it won't cause the grid to collapse. But in any case, EVs, if they're bidirectional, can actually secure the grid by at times when demand is high on the grid they could actually push electricity back into the grid if needed and of course this would be done uh, at a very small scale so say you had a, an ev that was plugged in and the battery was at 60 percent or 70 percent you could you know give five percent of your battery to the grid but if a thousand people gave five percent of their battery to the grid then you know that's the difference between firing up a, a coal-fired power plant or just pulling it from cars, and this, similarly with you know if you have wall batteries, same kind of idea. So uh, that was, I think, what I what I said in the in the in the post at the time. Yeah, I mean it's um it's fabulous, really, isn't it? You know, as you say, this um, energy reuse. We've we've spoken in the past on the podcast about energy harvesting. Um, and, the, and the benefits of that actually from, from an IoT point of view. Um, but I think from a IoT for good standpoint, you know, there's lots of different examples that you've spoken about in the past and you've gone on record talking about. What are some of the favorite examples that you've got, both in either a consumer or commercial context of IoT being used as a real force for good? <laughs> Yeah, good question. <clears throat> um, in 2018, my older son was 14 going on 15. And three days shy of his 15th birthday, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And it was shocking, devastating. You know, we no history of diabetes in the family. And for people who are unaware, type one is the, the bad diabetes. It's the one where you have to take blood sugar measurements uh, five or six times a day and inject yourself with insulin in order to literally stay alive. And so the way you do that is you get a little pin prick and you prick your finger and you squeeze out a little bit of blood. And you put that onto what's called a glucometer, and that tells you your blood sugar reading at that moment. And you do this, as I said, five or six times a day, seven days a week, et cetera, et cetera. And this was, you know, uh, this is this is the life or was the life of lots of people with diabetes until there's this device called the Libre Freestyle Sensor. It's not the only one. There's a couple of different ones out in the market now, but basically it's a sensor which my son attaches to the back of his arm 
and leaves it there for two weeks. And after the two weeks, takes it off and puts a new sensor on the other arm for the next two weeks. And what does it do? It means he doesn't have to prick his finger and squeeze out that drop of blood because it is measuring his blood sugar level, not five or six times a day, but rather once every minute. So instead of having five or six readings per day, he now has 1,440 readings per day. And it has a built-in NFC and Bluetooth chip. So he can just swipe his phone over it, even, you know, he doesn't have to pull up his sleeve, just over the area. It downloads the information to his phone. The information goes from his phone. It's uploaded to a personal private cloud that his medical team have access to. Every time he does a reading, I get a a flash on my phone and on my watch telling me he's just had a reading so I can monitor it as well. And the, his medical team have full access to it so they can see how he's doing with his blood sugar levels and, you know, advise him on uh, slight adjustments to take in the amount of insulin he injects and things like that. So you asked what's my favorite use of IoT. I would say that right there because, you know, it's got the whole, the smarts and connectivity on the sensor. It's got the the cloud-delivered analytics for his blood sugar levels, uh, the whole big data story. It, it, it's got it all, and it's keeping my son alive. Yeah, an incredibly personal and poignant uh, device there. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. Or, or not poignant because, you know, it's, 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 it's changed his life because he now doesn't have to be sticking needles in his fingers and squeezing out blood all the time. It's it made his life a lot easier. And uh, it means he has far more granular data to help him better control his uh, blood sugar levels. So it's it's improved his life, his life significantly. Yeah. I, I, had a, I had an ex-partner actually about 10 years ago that had type 1 diabetes. And um, I, I can understand because there was quite a few times where she got quite low and had to kind of uh, have like orange juices and various sugars straight away. And, and sometimes it was actually quite scary. Um, And then she was fed up of having, you know, quite thick skin on the finger from having the pink brick constantly. Um, And it really kind of got her down. Right. So I think these devices back then were kind of in the early stages, actually. Um, So, so now seeing it, you know, uh, described as you said, it, it's fantastic to see that advance advancement and to be able to do that. And um, I had a friend in university back in the eighties who was type one as well, and how she had to measure her blood sugar was with a urine sample, so not even squeezing blood out of the finger, urine sample, and into a a, a, a little bottle which would change color depending on the amount of sugar in your blood. And it would tell you what your blood sugar was like six hours earlier. So, you know, the advances that have come on in the last 40 years is just just stunning. Absolutely stunning, you know. And, and it's so fantastic to talk about these types of things because I think sometimes, especially at the moment, you know, when generative AI is just taking over, you know, and it's, and it, and like it, it, it's good and it has its, you know, merits. But, you know, where, where are the kind of real... Uh, impactful stories like this and this is why it's so great to have these types of conversations um, to be able to uncover them and to, and to raise awareness because you know IoT really really can act as a force for good in so many ways and, and as you say this is a, a very personal story to you and, and I really appreciate you sharing it yeah. um, 
So we we spoke in our discovery call to to move on to another aspect. There was um was it the drone store you were telling me about as well? That was a fascinating one, which I thought. Like, yeah, that's to, that's to true. <clears throat> yeah, so there's a a YouTuber called Mark Rober. And he's he's ex NASA and he does some great videos, really entertaining videos about all kinds of things like taking on scammers and you know things like that and how to build things. He builds mazes in his garden to try and stop uh, squirrels taking bird food and all kinds of fun things like that. But he posted a video recently, a really good one, about a company called Zipline who are based out of uh, Africa, and what they do is they use drones for delivering supplies to hospitals, remote hospitals and clinics. And it's it's an absolutely fascinating use case. The company are called Zipline and they've got a whole setup. They've got two bases in where they can cover the entire country. And the drones they have are custom, custom made drones and they launch them off a catapult and they, they're literally launching them every, but every 90 seconds, they're sending them out with delivery. So they, you know, they get a phone call in from a hospital or a clinic and, you know, we need this. Okay. Put on a drone, boom, out it goes. And it arrives at the clinic, however many minutes or, or whatever later they each, I think they cover the drones cover about 130 kilometers or something like that. that that's the kind of range they have. And, you know, they do a, a, a U-turn, so they go, they, they drop the package with a little parachute, it sails down, and then the drone comes back, and they have a special device for catching the drone, so it's, it's caught and recovered and put into, you know, to the battery taken out and, and, and put on charge, and then a new, a new battery put in, and off it goes again. And so it, it, it's transformed the delivery of things like blood and... A, a, they didn't talk about organs, but medicines as well to, you know, these remote hospitals and clinics throughout the country is absolutely spectacular. The use of drones, I mean, we see massive use of drones now in Ukraine, for example, on both sides. But drone technology is changing so many, so many things. I saw an ad recently for a new software platform for a company that have drones that are helping utility companies check their power lines, for example. Before that used to be done by people dangling from helicopters and now they get drones to go up and the drones can do it autonomously and come back and the software platform can examine the video footage from the drone and go, yep, you have a problem there, that kind of thing. So, you know, they've been used for remote maintenance on wind turbines as well, same kind of idea. Uh, it, the, you know, the drones are, are having a huge, huge impact on so many aspects of life, not just uh, hobbyists like myself who have, you know, one over in the corner there, for example, but uh, also for serious professional reasons as well. Yeah, I think I think the, the drone, the drone stories that you hear are, are incredible. I went to a, um, a wildlife photography of the year exhibition uh, in Bristol, in the southwest of the UK. And um, about 80% of all of the photographs were done on a DJ Mavic 2 Pro, right? Yeah. Um, and they were all drone shots. And the, the, and the one that won the competition was, um, it was a picture of some bears in an abandoned town in a remote part of Russia, I think it was. Wow. And um, they were just crawling through um, this, uh, one of these abandoned houses in this abandoned town looking for food and they'd come in land significantly because of you know, ocean um, uh, ocean issues and you know, lack of food etc and it was so powerful but but also the the advanced advancing aspects of drone technology as you say I, it, it's one that I'm fascinated by as well and I think that zipline 
case is 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 phenomenal, isn't it? And it yeah. and it makes it makes me feel makes me feel a lot more comfortable and happy about drone technology because you know from a from a military and defence point of view, you know, you mentioned Ukraine. Um, I can I can understand it, but I think as a as a kind of society as a race, we need to be promoting the good aspects of what drones can be used. First, oh yeah, right. I, I was talking to um, an executive from a company called ERP, and despite the name, they have nothing to do with ERP software. Uh, what they are, the ERP stands for Elephants, Rhinos, and People, and they're an they're a non-profit based out of uh, Southern Africa. And what they do is they use drones to deter, detect and deter poachers. So they have, uh, you know, they, they fly the drones over these big areas and they can detect poachers from quite far away. And then they can send in rangers if they think there are poachers operating in the area. And they have as well, they have sensors around seismic sensors around as well, which can detect movement. And they use these in combination with the drones. And they have another couple of interesting initiatives as well, uh, because what, they, they, what they're doing as well as protecting the elephants and the rhinos is they're also helping the people in the region work in conjunction with the animals. So for example, the one of the problems with the elephants is they tend to trample on farmland, which of course means that the local people are, you know, it annoys them, obviously. So what they do is they've set up fences to uh, make sure the elephants don't trample on the farmland. And what they do is they string beehives on the fences because the elephants don't like bees. And so this deters the elephants, but also the beehives make honey. And so the local people can harvest the honey so that they tend the beehives make sure that the elephants don't come near them. They get the honey from it. So it becomes a whole, and they can sell the honey. So it becomes a whole new economic model and business case for, for the local people. So they're helping the people there as well as helping the animals. So it's a beautiful little system they've got operating there. And they're running schools and doing things like that as well. They give, they give the kids in the area free bikes as long as they attend school. So, you know, lots of lovely initiatives like that. Yeah, I bet there's hundreds, if not thousands, of these that you you probably never get to hear about, and I yeah. love hearing about them because it's yep. just it's so amazing, um, and you know the various different aspects. And I guess that's the beauty of IoT. You know, it's just it really encompasses so many different aspects and so many different ways of connecting people. Um, and and again, the definition I believe of IoT, as per I think Oxford's English Dictionary, is connecting objects and environments to the internet, right? Yeah. Um, and and you know, nothing nothing could be um, uh, more significant to that than the, to the examples that we've just spoken about, actually. So um, you know, I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, Tom, moving on, if I can, um, sure. one of the um, things that you are uh, going on record talking about quite a bit is is the concept of product as a service. Oh, yeah. um, and, I, and I wondered if you could help define for our viewers and listeners what that means and what companies are offering this and, and why IoT could play a part in it. Sure, yeah. So product as a service is the idea of moving away from ownership of stuff to subscribing to stuff. So, the, I mean, the, 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 
the example that you, everyone would be familiar with is, you know, you no longer go to the DVD store or the CD shop for your music or videos. You go to Netflix or Amazon or, you know, and you, you on Netflix, you can download or watch whatever it is you want, whenever you want, or Spotify for music or Apple Music or whatever your preference is. So, you know, we're not we've subscribed now to these services rather than going out and buying individual DVDs or CDs. And this this movement away from ownership is pervading other aspects of, of industry as well. Uh, and, and a cool example of that is the light bulb industry. So <clears throat> back when light, shortly after light bulbs were first invented, there was a problem with their economics. And the problem with their economics was they were lasting too long. And so the light bulb manufacturers weren't making enough money. So they got together in, I want to say it was around the 1920s. They had a meeting and they had this little kind of mini cartel where they decided, okay, we will limit the lifetime of our bulbs uh, by design to around 2000 hours. And roughly the economics of that will means we'll make money on every light bulb we sell, which hadn't been the case before. So in built obsolescence, light bulbs lasted about 2000 hours right the way through to about uh, 2008, I want to think, was roughly when the world started passing regulations to move us off incandescent light bulbs and onto CFLs initially and subsequently LEDs. And so the problem with that for the light bulb manufacturers is the LED light bulbs have a lifetime of about 25,000 hours, not 2,000 hours, and they don't cost, you know, 13 and a half times as much and they might cost two or three times as much. So obviously, this is a huge problem for light bulb manufacturers because for the amount of light that they're producing, they're they're getting far less money. You know, they get two to three times the amount of money for an LED light bulb, but it's going to last 13 times as much or more. And so what the light bulb manufacturers have to do is change their business model. So now what you're starting to see is the Osrams and the Philips and, and the others starting to do lighting as a service, not so much in the consumer space, but more in the industrial space. So an example is the city of Los Angeles. The city of Los Angeles doesn't own any streetlights. All of the streetlights in Los Angeles are owned by Philips. And these are smart, connected LED light bulbs. And so they're connected because they're sending back the information to Philips all the time so that Philips knows exactly how many lumens of light were delivered and so how much to bill the city for. But also because they're connected, they're sending back their status. And so Philips can see at any point in time if any bulb is likely to fail. And if it is, they can send an engineer to site to swap it out so that it's swapped out before it fails so that the city isn't without light on any particular street and so that Philips aren't without revenue from any bulb at any point in time. So they're maximizing their revenue. But of course, because the bulbs still belong to Philips, they don't want to send that engineer out. They want to send as few engineers out as possible. So now there's no incentive to have inbuilt obsolescence, the opposite is the case. They're now engineering these bulbs to last longer and longer and longer. So their average lifetime has gone from 25 to 50 to 75,000 hours. You know, so it's, it's a huge sustainability win right there uh, because, you know, the same bulb now lasts three times longer, gives light. It means the city of Los Angeles always has lights 
street, operational streetlights when it needs them. Philips has revenue coming in from its lights. And so it's a sustainable business model for Philips. And so that whole shift away from ownership to product as a service, in this case, lighting as a service, works for everyone. It's a, it's, it's a win, win, win. And it's all made possible because the bulbs are smart and connected their IoT devices, to your point. Yeah, I think I think the, the technology is fantastic. And thanks for sharing that. Um, one of the, my personal view on this is, and, I, and I'm eager to hear your thoughts on this, and, and this is quite a provocative question, but I think it's important. Um, do, do you think Overall, there may be something sinister lying between this kind of product as a service, um, microtransactions type of culture that we seem to be going on, right? Do you think it's part of a slightly larger agenda that people will, will probably end up actually owning very, very few things in the future? Um, and I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on that before we get on to other case studies, because I, there's a lot of talk, isn't there? And there's, a, there's some speculation around whether or not we could go too far with this. Um, and I think the, te the technology itself is amazing, but yep. technology is like, a, it's like a tool, isn't it? You know, in fact, we say this on our website, like any tool, it could be good and bad, depending on whose hands it's in. But um, what are your thoughts on that? You, you know, is there, is, there, is, there, is there a point that we could go too far with, with product as a service and microtransactions? Potentially. Um, I think the, the movement to the product as a service and away from ownership is happening slowly. So I think people will adjust because it's not a sudden change. It, as I say, it's happening slowly. People, people will adjust and become uh, uh, happy enough with it. You know, it's not, I, I don't, I don't see per se anything sinister there. Um, it should mean that the devices that are manufactured have less obsolescence so it's more s sustainable uh, it should mean that um, because they are more sustainable you should be paying as well less for them so it should be saving money for people uh, and it should as well because the devices are not yours because they belong to the manufacturer uh, they should fail far less as well so you should have far more reliable a uh, better quality kit, which fails less, which costs less, which is more sustainable. So, uh, no, I, I don't see anything particularly sinister about it. No, I, I mean, I can imagine if everything is, then you've got to manage your outgoings carefully. But apart from that, as long as you can manage your outgoings, you should be fine. Yeah, and, and, it's, an, and it's an interesting point, actually. And I think um, the... Um, the cost, the the monthly cost as opposed to the overall cost, um, you know, it's something, it's something that people would need to calculate. And that's the same with any sort of SaaS model, right, you know, mm -hmm. that we have in, in technology. Um, but I think the sustainability aspect that you touched upon there in your answer is actually another case study, which would be great to talk about. So uh, the EV case study, um, you've spoken about battery life increasing yep. significantly. It'd be great to expand upon that so people could understand the potential that we've got here as well. Sure, yeah. So <clears throat> uh, one thing that a lot of people probably 
don't realize about EVs is that the batteries in an EV are not like the batteries in your phone or your tablet. Uh, you know, the, the ones in your phone and your tablet, you can see their kind of capacity go down after a year or so of usage or two years of usage. Whereas the batteries in an EV, they typically lose about 1% of capacity for roughly every 40,000 kilometers driven. So or 30 to 40,000 kilometers driven. So that means after you've driven 300,000 kilometers, your car is still at 90% of original capacity. Uh, or, or even higher, depending on the car and the battery. But it's usually three to 400,000 kilometers. You're still at 90%. And what manufacturers do of, of EVs is they give a warranty of, depends on the manufacturer, but Kia have like a seven-year warranty on the, on the battery, which uh, they say if it goes below 80% in that time, they'll replace the battery. You know, so it's a, it's a full warranty. Uh, and other manufacturers have slightly different warranties, but typically the... the there's a full warranty there. Anything goes wrong with the battery. The the battery life, as I said, is so when when it reaches eighty percent. So I I have an EV. The EV I have is a Kia Niro. The battery in it is a sixty four kilowatt hour battery. So not the biggest, but it's you know I mean the the ones in the ID four are seventy seven for example. But mine's a sixty four kilowatt hour battery. Gets me about five hundred kilometers of range, which is nice because it's a very efficient car. Uh, if I lose 20% of that, and I'm down at 80% of capacity, that's still about 50 kilowatt hours of battery. I'm not good at maths, but it's in or around that ballpark. So 50 kilowatt hours. If you think about the Tesla Powerwall batteries that you strap onto the side of your house, those are 14 kilowatt hours. So the battery in this at 80% of original capacity is still three Powerwalls, you know, worth of, worth of storage. And what's actually happening is the cost of batteries is falling year on year on year. The energy density of them is increasing year on year. So the energy density of batteries today is 3x what it was in 2010. And we're looking now at uh, a case where the life of the batteries is increasing as well. They're they're going from a life of three to 500,000 kilometers or more reaching 80% to the latest batteries from Scania, the, the truck manufacturer, they said that their batteries will last one and a half million kilometers. And the new Tesla 4680 batteries have been shown to have a lifetime of about three and a half million kilometers. Now, that's just mind blowing because the average life of a, the body of a car in Europe today is at around 330,000 kilometers. So if you have a battery that can last 10 times the expected lifetime of a vehicle, then suddenly that changes the whole economics and the whole potential business case for making electric vehicles. You know, why wouldn't you shift to the product as a service model that we talked about earlier, where you make an EV, you give it to someone for a three to five year rental, and then you take it back after that time, give them another one. But when you take back, you know, you buff out any scrapes, put a new coat of paint on it, put in a new suite of electronics. So it's got the latest technology and gizmos and you send it back out again with a, with a battery that's three or four years old, but you know, of a potential lifetime of a hundred years, you sell, you, you rent it out again as nearly new with all the latest gizmos and you, for the price or for using about 5% of the material to create a completely new vehicle, you have one which is as new 
and you're giving it to people and they've got the latest technology in it because cars today are becoming like our phones. They're becoming technological devices. And now, you know, if a car is five, six, seven years old, if it doesn't have built-in Bluetooth or if it doesn't have USB, you know, you're kind of going, really? You know, everyone wants their cars now with the latest gizmos, the latest technology, CarPlay or Android Auto built-in so you can use your phone, you know, all these kind of things. And as these things advance, the lifetime of a car is going to get shorter the same way the lifetime of our phones gets shorter as they become more technological devices. So if we shift to this kind of model, we can get a nearly new car every three, four, five years for a monthly rental. And I mean, car manufacturers are doing the, the, the long, well, longish term rental already. You know, you can here in Spain, at least I can go to Volkswagen, I can go get a, a rental Volkswagen for a three to five year lease where I'm paying three to 400 euros a month. And that covers um, either 10 or 12,000 kilometers a year, you can go if you pay more, you can get more kilometers per year, it covers uh, your maintenance, it covers your insurance, it covers your tax, you know, everything is all in one uh, monthly payment of three or 400 euros, depending on the model, of course, and depending on how many miles you're going to go for. And so uh, it's, it's, it's just that it's cars as a service. And if, if you, uh, if, if you're running an EV, of course, your cost per month are low anyway, because your cost of fuel is very low for an EV because you're just putting electricity into it, which, you know, mostly you're getting at home and it's a fraction of the cost of petrol or diesel. And as well as that, your cost of maintenance is at least half what it would be for an internal combustion engine vehicle. So, you know, your, your costs have come way down. Your, um, the, the carbon footprint of making this nearly new vehicle has dropped 90% or more because uh, you're only just putting a few bits of electronics in it and giving it a buff of paint and some new wheels, maybe. So, you know, you, you it, it's a huge sustainability win. And it's a huge win for us as consumers as well, because we're getting cool, fancy items all the time and at a fraction of the, the cost of, uh, of a carbon footprint. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's a fantastic example. And you speak so knowledgeably on this, right? Um, for me, the, the most poignant thing that you've said there is a, the battery life. I mean, that has Tesla going on record to say that, you know, the potential, what, what was it again? Was it three? Three and a half million kilometers. Yeah. That's no, it's, crazy. It's actually 3.6 million, if I remember correctly. 3.6 million kilometers. Yeah. So thanks again for IoT Tech Expo Europe for sponsoring today's episode. IoT Tech Expo Europe brings together Europe's brightest minds to talk about cutting edge technologies in one place. Experience top level discussions, innovative IoT innovations and strategies. Mark your calendars for the 26th and 27th of September 2023 when IoT Tech Expo Europe returns to the vibrant city of Amsterdam. I'll be there, will you? Get your tickets at iottechexpo.com Europe. The link will be in the description. In terms of the actual material needed, you know, uh, this can offset that, right? Because there's talk around the precious metals in building these batteries, etc. But clearly, yeah. if it can last for that period of time, then that's a good thing. And you could offset from actually having to build a whole new car, the cost of building a whole new car, the panels, the equipment, so on and so forth. Exactly. So Exactly. And the other thing that people are unaware of is if you stack up the amount of mining and milling and stuff that needs to be done for EVs versus fossil fuels, you actually have to do about 400 times more 
mining for fossil fuels than you do for EVs when you take into account all the oil and gas and everything that's that's mined for those. So shifting from fossil fuels to EVs cuts drastically the amount of mining and milling that will have to be done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Tom, I think, you know, I think we could talk for hours about various subjects and various <laughs> things. You know, it's, uh, it, it's lovely to talk to someone that's so well versed in all of this and and so knowledgeable in, in different areas and, and a subject really close to, to my heart and that of the podcast. Um, so thank you so much for, for all these insights. Not at all. Um, the future, I kind of want to kind of get to that point before we wrap up the show today. How, how can uh, IoT maintain its presence as a force for good? And, and are we shaping up in, in the right way? Do you see further advancements like this taking center stage and people talking about them and what yeah. can we do to what can we do to make sure that this positive momentum keeps going well i mean i don't think there's anything that we need to do per se i think just the technological advances mean that these devices are going to become uh smaller cheaper more powerful and so they're going to become ubiquitous. We'll get to a point where we'll have IoT devices on our clothes, for example, to monitor the status of our clothes. Because if we get into a world where you know you uh, you're, you're doing second-hand clothes or you're doing circular economy of clothes, for example, then having a a, a device on your clothes which is light enough that it can be on your clothes without any discomfort, but is able to monitor that lifetime usage of that of that item of clothing. And so say, you know, whether or not it's suitable to, to go into a second life or whether it now needs to be disassembled and, and uh, made into a new garment, those kind of things. So yeah, uh, smaller, lighter, cheaper, uh, more powerful is, is, is I think where we're headed with IoT. And, you know, it's been headed that way for the last, this isn't a profound prediction. <laughs> you know, IoT has been around a long time back when it was machine to machine back in the aughts. And, you know, the devices constantly get smarter, better, faster, cheaper. And that's only going to continue. Yeah. I'll have to um, send you an episode to a chap called Christian Dalgard that we did um, some months back. He runs a business called Smart Textiles, actually, about ah. um, interlacing um circuit boards and silicon into fabric, right? Nice. Um, it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a really interesting episode. But uh, Tom, thank you so much for coming on to the IoT podcast show today. Honestly, it's been excellent to have you here. And <laughs> as I say, the, the insights are, are, are fantastic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up with some quick fire questions if I can, as we uh -oh. always do. Uh, <laughs> well, one that's going to be really interesting. You seem like a man that's skilled in many different areas um, from your entrepreneurial background, rising okay. through the ranks. Uh, at SAP and, and where you have been. Um, so this is a really good one. If you could learn any new skill, and uh, what would it be and why? Wow. Um, you know, I think gardening would be one that I would uh, like to, to be able to, to do properly. I'd love to have uh, a vegetable patch out the back there and, you know, grow some of my own food and veg. It's a bit of a left field answer. I don't think that's what you were expecting, but that's... <laughs> no. that's <laughs> I like it. That's something I'd love to do. Yeah, I like it. No, absolutely. Um, I completely agree. I think, you know, growing your own and making sure you know from... What do they call it? From... from from field to plate or from soil to plate? Oh, yeah, farm to fork. 
farm to fork. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a nice concept. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Um, what's a quote that you live by, Tom? Every day is a school day. Ah, nice. Nice. Yeah, no, yeah I, I think I, I can tell you live by that. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> I can tell you definitely live by that. Yeah. We, we, we've had a couple of people on the past, and I think they sometimes struggle with quotes. But you you knew that off the tip of the tongue, so mm. I can definitely live. I can definitely know that. Um, and a final one, and an interesting one, and uh, curious to see the answer on this because you've got so many IoT use cases under your belt. But what is the most unusual or unexpected IoT use case you've ever come across? in a personal, professional context? Um, I think the use of audio sensors in, I think it was Los Angeles, on streetlights to locate uh, shootings is probably... Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's So they, they triangulate where a shooting has taken place based on audio sensors on the streetlights and the street lights and the street furniture in, I think it was Los Angeles. Well, I thought that, that was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, wow. weird. We, we, weird and uh, not quite wonderful, just weird. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, yeah, def definitely weird for us, you know, being European, UK, Irish, right? You know, in, yeah. in, you know, to, to, to have that. But um, the, 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 the power of what we can do with street lights and um, in general, the kind of digital pins. We had, um, I think it was Jeffrey Decoux from the... Um, um, or, uh, or Autonomous Institute, I think it was, um, a couple of years ago now, talking about what we can put into streetlights and the amount of tech that can go in the streetlight and why it's so beneficial because they're everywhere, right? You already spoken earlier about the light bulbs, right? So the, I think it's, it's, it's not just that they're everywhere. It's that we've taken out the incandescent bulb, which would have been, which would have required a couple of hundred watts and we've put in LEDs, which are required tens of watts. So there's far more power available now for stringing other things onto them. Yes. Tom, we're going to have to wrap up. It's absolutely <laughs> excellent today. Thank you so much for coming on to the IoT podcast. Where can people find out more about you online, on socials and websites, perhaps? Sure, yeah. Um, uh, wherever, I guess. Uh, I have a blog at tomraftery.com. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter, easy to find there, uh, at Tom Raftery on Twitter. And just there's not many Tom Rafteries on LinkedIn. I'm easy enough to find there too. So any any places like that. I'm on Instagram as well, but not as active there as I am on, on Twitter and LinkedIn. So any of those places are good to find me. Excellent. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Thank you once again to IoT Tech Expo Europe for sponsoring today's episode. Once again, please get your tickets. The link will be in the description. Thanks for tuning in to the IoT podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're on. See you next week for more IoT talks and tales.